0: Hi, you're listening to the International Risk Podcast. This podcast is for CEOs, board members, risk and compliance officers, security advisors, and anyone interested in improving operations. On this podcast, we hear from the traditional to the wacky, from renowned risk management experts to Red Bull daredevils, There is something to learn about the way we perceive, manage, and mitigate risk from all of our guests. Your host, Dominic Bowen, will ask the questions that you all want the answers to. If you know Dominic, then you know that he is well acquainted with risk. His 20-year career has seen him successfully establish operations in some of the most complex environments around the world. Dominic has spent most of his career establishing large and successful operations in places like Haiti, Syria, Sudan, Iraq, Lebanon, Bangladesh, Pakistan and so many other high-risk and medium-risk locations. Joined by our excellent guests, he'll reveal innovative ideas on how you can ensure your organisation thrives in areas with high risk.
1: Hi, I'm Dominic Bowen and I'm the host of the International Risk Podcast. Today we'll explore some opportunities and risks of the recent BRICS expansion. With geopolitical affairs, the BRICS, a collection of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, has long been a focal point for discussions about the shift towards a multipolar World Order. This coalition of emerging economies has recently announced a bold move, one that could alter the balance of global power. And I'm keen to explore that today with our guest, Professor Bruce Jones. He's a senior fellow with the Brookings Institution and his research expertise and policy experience in international security, US strategy, the international order, and great power relations. Professor Jones will help us explore what this expansion means for the future of international collaboration, governance, and, of course, the delicate balance of power. We're really excited to have Professor Jones on the International Risk Podcast today. Welcome, Professor Bruce Jones. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for coming on the International Risk Podcast. And perhaps we could start off with an easy kick for the benefit of our audience. Could you describe the BRICS and shed light on the significance of this expansion and what it might mean to have new members within the BRICS?
2: There's sort of two very different answers to that. One is what it is technically, and one is what it's like. I'm tempted to say that what it's like is Christmas dinner with your in-laws, sort of a collection of people with whom you have close relations, some of whom you actually like, and some of whom you might not. But more seriously, it's similar in format to the G7. It's a cluster of major economies that perceive some degree of overlapping or shared interests in the international economic system and the international trade system. Unlike the G7, they do not share strategic values, governance values, and have a lot of tension between them as members. So it's a very odd grouping in international affairs and sometimes a little hard to get your hand on what it actually means.
1: So you mentioned the G7, and of course, much like the G7 and even like the European Union, economic alliances can sometimes evolve into significant political forces on the global stage. Now, with the inclusion of countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, and maybe others, how do you anticipate the BRICS' political influence will grow within the international system?
2: You know, about a a little less than a decade ago, I wrote a piece called There's No Mortar in the BRICS. And that's still true. And in the inclusion of the Saudis and the Iranians in the same go just illustrates the point. How do you think that any mechanism that has Saudi and Iran are going to be sort of working together strategically? Right. It's a very odd clustering These are all countries that have concerns about the shape of the international economic system, concerns about the international trade system. They share a preoccupation with the West's dominance of those mechanisms to date. But underneath that, they have very different strategic interests. Just think about Saudi Arabia and Iran. And even before the expansion, the key to this, in my mind, is understanding the nature of the relationship between China and India, the two largest members of the BRICS, who have fought three wars together in their not too distant past and are currently in a stage of acute tension along their Himalayan border. India has no interest in seeing Chinese dominance of the international order. It just does have some overlapping interests with China and Brazil and others in terms of reform of the international economic order. So it's a strange mix of countries, in some cases, have very different or even antagonistic strategic interests, but they have overlapping economic interests, at least to some degree.
1: And so if they can't coalesce around common strategic positions or political interests, especially, as you said, you know, you've got the likes of Saudi Arabia and Iran, China and India already part of it. How might the bloc's expansion impact global trade dynamics, especially in terms of energy markets? There's quite a few big energy plays in their buyers and sellers, as well as trade routes. I mean, noting the very strategic locations that many of these countries hold and the resources of these members, what would that likely do to the international trade?
2: Well, I think a really key point here is that we should look at what China is trying to use this for, right? And I think that China is trying to build up support among this large group of quote-unquote developing economies. I mean, they're not really developing anymore, but they're sort of middle-income economies who have sustained dissatisfaction with the way the West has run the trade system, has run the international financial system, et cetera. They're trying to build up a kind of coalition of support for things like de-dollarization, creation of sort of different trading blocks, et cetera. I don't know that they have a lot of support within the... Grouping for that, Brazil sort of flirts in that direction. India is dead opposed. The Saudis flirt in that direction, but you know, obviously, still allied to the United States. Iran already working very closely with China. As a grouping, I don't think they're really behind China's vision, but I think China's playing a long game here. It's easy to say that now. You could imagine situation deteriorating in the West. You could imagine U.S.-India relationships deteriorating as they have in the past. And so you could imagine things evolving. And I think that China has created and is trying to kind of foster this grouping to be ready to move in the direction of things like de-dollarization over time. That point
1: about de-dollarization is a really interesting one. And I think many BRICS nations might talk about establishing a more inclusive and a more equitable international order. And I think part of that is about catalyzing changes within the global financial structures, such as, as you just said, the dominance of the US dollar when it comes to international trade. What does this mean for the potential of alternative currency blocks?
2: Are there alternative
1: currency blocks?
2: It seems to me that we're sort of still in a mode where realistically, when we look at things, the dollar still plays just a hugely important role. And every other potential contender for a kind of serious reserve currency really doesn't have anything like the advantages the United States has. So I think that we really only see a move away from the dollar playing this hugely dominant role in financial settlements and in trade settlements if we experience a kind of deep and acute and sustained financial crisis in the United States, at which point some of the alternatives will become more appealing or the relevant entities may do the things necessary to play that role. I mean, China hasn't floated its own currency. I mean, there's all sorts of obstacles to the RMB euro look for a while like it might be an alternative, but it hasn't really ever sort of emerged as a serious alternative to the dollar. So, you know, if we were to face a serious and a sustained financial crisis in the United States, which is not impossible by any means, then I think we would see alternatives to the dollar move. But it's not going to come out of the bricks per se. India's dead set against seeing China strengthen its hand in international trade or financial terms. I don't think the Saudis are going to want to see that unless there are sort of compensatory moves in other domains. There's so many tensions within this grouping. I don't think the grouping as a whole will move in that direction. But China will keep pushing this, and if the United States gives it opportunities by having crises or... By failing to resolve some of its internal tensions, then we may see things move in that direction. But I don't think the BRICS will be the cause. It may be a beneficiary in some sense, but it won't be the cause of de-dollarization.
1: And if we look in a different area, historically, the BRICS have shown a united area in one front, and that's even during contentious global events, going as far back as protecting Vladimir Putin in his diplomatic isolation after Russia annexed Crimea back in 2014. They even stood firmly behind Bolsonaro when he found himself globally isolated after Trump's removal. And then, of course, more recently, after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022, Putin could again rely on other BRICS countries to provide him with support. I mean, he relied on China for diplomatic and economic support. India has supported Russia with circumventing sanctions. South Africa has participated in military exercises and Brazil has embraced Putin's narratives around the war in Ukraine. Do you believe that the expansion of BRICS will create even more tensions between BRICS and the West? And if so, how would you see this tension manifesting?
2: Well, first, on the specifics, Brazil voted in favor of U.S. drafted resolutions condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine in the council and in the GA. So Putin didn't have support from the Brazilians there. On the Indians, I mean, I have to say, I find it just unbelievably ridiculous for the West to accuse India of violating sanctions because they were purchasing oil when the West was continuing to buy vast qualities of Russian gas until Nord Stream was disrupted. So I think that that one looks different. But your broad point is fair, which is that all of these countries have at various times and in various ways stood up against what they perceive as a West's willingness to intervene when it wants and wield the so-called rules of international order when it doesn't want or when other people take actions, right? The United States wasn't outraged by its own intervention in Iraq, you know, etc. I mean, so the West is highly selective in our outrage about violations of so-called rules of the international order. And these countries are acutely aware of the West's tendency to be selective there. And since they are not themselves capable of intervening in other countries, they don't do it. And therefore, it doesn't sort of come up with their role. I mean, obviously, Russia. So it's a kind of easy win, in a sense, for these countries to stand in defense of non-intervention. It's very popular in the global South. It's very popular in the kind of formerly developing world, etc. And there's a lot of ground to be gained by sort of slapping at the West when the West does these interventionist things, as we pretty often do. But again, I think we should be careful in assuming that they do so jointly. The one example we did have of that you mentioned was after the intervention in Crimea, where the BRICS refused to condemn Putin. And at a point in time when the then G8, which very quickly became the G7, was trying to isolate Russia, the BRICS would not go along. That was quite an important moment. And I think a kind of historical puzzle will be... Not to be too abstract about these things, but, you know, if you go back to that period of time, 2014, 2015, 2016, U.S.-India relations were sort of a lot different than they are now, still a question mark about how much India would sort of move towards the West or towards the United States, still spending an awful lot of time with the Chinese, its largest trading partner, etc. And then the Chinese begin just seriously harassing the Indians along their Himalayan border for years. And then cyber interventions and energy interventions, all sorts of kind of interventions into India, which steadily push India into the Western world block in sort of strategic terms and really undermine any kind of potential to turn the BRICS into a you know an alternative to the G7. And it's really, to me, a puzzle because they certainly had the option of not doing that. They had the option of maintaining good relations with Indians. And at a point in time when the West was about to go sort of spiraling down the black hole that was Trump, uh, there was a lot of ground to be gained had the BRICS really tried to consolidate themselves at that point in time. But China took the opposite approach. And it's only belatedly that it's come back to this question of trying to kind of consolidate the BRICS, at least in this phase of history too late in terms of the relationship with the Indians, so I think we'd have to wait for you know a major crisis in the United States or a major crisis in u s India relations that we don't currently foresee to see that to see that really changing
1: i mean given the strategic interests and the regional influences of countries like India and China in the Indo-Pacific region and like Iran and Saudi Arabia in the Middle East, how might the inclusion of new members affect the bloc's approach to international conflict resolution, whether we're talking about Palestine and Israel, whether we're talking about Ukraine and Russia, whether we're talking about Armenia and Azerbaijan, you know, and peacekeeping efforts, what changes could we expect to see and what should be some tensions we should be looking out for?
2: You know, I have to say, sort of on the face of it, it seems to me that the likely effect is to diminish the capacity of the BRICS to play any kind of mediation role or normative role. I mean, just take Israel, Palestine. Do we really think that the Saudis and the Iranians are going to agree to join joint initiative on that? No, clearly not. On any major issue in Asia, China and India are not going to agree to be in the same sort of mechanism to try to resolve an issue. So I think that it's very unlikely that we'll see country-specific roles by the Brexit, where they do potentially play a role or on a sort of international norms questions. You could imagine them speaking up on nuclear issues. You could imagine them speaking up on cyber governance or AI governance, where there's just enough overlap in their interests that they may be willing to make some joint statements there. But unlike the G7, which has repeatedly through history turned joint statements into joint initiatives or joint funds or joint mechanisms, et cetera, I don't think anything like that is coming out of the BRICS in the strategic or military domain. We have seen, of course, the emergence of a BRICS development bank, the quote-unquote new development bank based in Shanghai with an Indian head. So far, it's a fairly minor player in the world of development banks with large But there is potential there and we could see more moves. But to my mind, it's also illustrative that sort of just as the new development bank was getting up and running, China created the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is much more effective and much larger and is moving much quicker. So, you know, again, BRICS is sort of one of many instruments in the international system. For the Chinese, it's one of many fora that the Brazilians and the Indians and the Saudis participate in. It is not like the G7, something that's at a core to their political and international identity.
1: So if they have a diminished impact, like you're suggesting, are there potential security ramifications that need to be considered on that side of the coin?
2: No, not from the expansion. You know, the expansion is sort of a window dressing. I mean, you know, pulling in Saudi was the one piece where I thought, well, maybe that's significant. Although then to do Iran at the same time, I think undermined the potential there. The real tension in the BRICS is between China and India. You know, and we could see renewed fighting. We all came very close to serious fighting last year. I mean, there was a couple of people killed. It wasn't, you know, large scale fighting, but it was extremely tense and some people were killed. Along the Himalayan border, you're seeing the Indians build up their naval capability, their missile systems, bringing in artillery, developing closer ties with the United States, all to contain what they perceive as a threat from China. So if you're gonna see security issues and security tensions within the BRICS, it's at the absolute core, the two largest members. It's like imagining you know, United States and Japan contemplating war with each other if you even wanted to use a G7 analogy. And I think that just helps illustrate how different it is from the G7. It's an odd clustering of people who don't like each other much, but have some shared interests. It's very different from the G7.
1: Notwithstanding the fact that many of the members don't like each other, very much and have some shared and others competing interests. Do you think the expansion of the BRICS has the potential to influence existing international institutions or lead to the formation of new effective ones? There's obviously been a lot of discussion for well decades about the adaptations and changes and evolution with the Security Council. Do you think this could play a part in that? The
2: Security Council, no, because, of course, there are two major obstacles to Security Council reform. One is China and the other is the United States. The United States very recently, over the last couple of years, has changed its position, I think meaningfully, to the notion of supporting expansion of the Council, partly because it knows perfectly well that the Chinese and the Russians can't tolerate expansion of the permanent membership of the Council and will block any serious moves there. So, you know, if India or Brazil want permanent seats in the Council other BRIC members are going to be the biggest obstacles they face. So the council is not one where BRICS changes the dynamics. I think where we might see some interesting moves is in the question of reform of the international financial institutions and the multilateral development banks. You could see in those settings the wider BRICS sort of working together to advance certain sets of reforms. I think there are still sharp limits to that, though. You know, every time a major opening for a candidate comes up, I keep on wondering if we'd see a unified BRICS candidate, which would be, I think, quite hard for the West to resist. And of course we don't. The Indians back their candidate, the Chinese back their candidate, the Brazilians back their candidate, the Africans back their candidate, the West gets its way anyway. And so we really haven't seen that degree of cohesion, even in the multilateral development system, which is where you would expect it to be easiest for them to cohere or to agree on sort of common approaches. But it's still possible that they will. And there's a lot of firmament, as you know, around reform of the international financial institutions, IMF, World Bank, multilateral development banks. And you could see the kind of wider BRICS membership sort of banding together to some extent to try to push forward those reforms in which they do have you know, heavily overlapping interests.
1: With regards to the balance and the power of soft power that some of the new members might bring, whether it's countries like Argentina or Egypt, do you think that this cultural and diplomatic leverage that new members might bring to the table could be more powerful than what we might be expecting, the traditional hard power?
2: Well, Argentina just delved itself out of that game, that's for sure. <laughs> Look, I think there are countries within this grouping that have a meaningful amount of international soft power. Brazil, South Africa, and India has hard power as well. And I think a kind of more interesting question over time will be whether those countries, the IPSA group or some clustering like that, try to forge relations with Western powers that have soft power, you know, Germany, for example, um, Australia, Canada, those kinds of countries to create some sort of middle powers grouping or some grouping like that, that might be able to express its views and have some influence in their international politics. But The individual soft power of those countries so far has not been amplified by their membership in the BRICS, nor is it how they've tried to use it. You know, when Brazil has an issue it wants to pursue, it doesn't use the BRICS as the platform for doing that, nor do the South Africans. They have other mechanisms. I think for all of them, it's really, in the first instance, it's a place where they can meet with countries. Again, it's like, you know, as I said, Christmas dinner with your in-laws. You may not like all of them. But there are important issues that need to get dealt with, resolved, handled, managed, et cetera. And you need a mechanism to do that. They have extensive trade relations. They have extensive relations inside the financial systems. So they need a place where they can work together to manage that stuff. And that's essentially how the BRICS is being used so far. We're not seeing so far any of them use it as a platform to try to amplify their own soft power. Obviously, the exception to that being the Chinese who drove that expansion.
1: And with the BRICs and the prospective BRIC members, do you think they have a role in shaping the global environmental and climate change policies? I guess especially considering the diverse ecological footprints and industrial footprints and commitments of these members. Do you see them having a big role in, you know, obviously we've got COP28 coming up in Dubai and several other big events. Do you see them having a role there?
2: I could see them playing some role in blocking Western-led initiatives, if they feel those initiatives are really injurious to them. Although I think, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia and India and China have such different interests in this space that it's a little bit hard to see anything other than blocking maneuvers. We already saw this once, right, in Copenhagen, the sort of the proto-BRICS really played an important role in blocking some of the Western initiatives that they really didn't like or were against their interests. And you remember that sort of famous sort of showdown session where Obama and the Chinese and the, if you look and span out in that room, it's essentially the bricks in that room. It's Obama and the bricks are the kind of cutting the final deals at Copenhagen because they didn't like the European led consensus that was emerging. So they have played a role in blocking initiatives. I'm not sure that adding Saudi and Iran helps them (laughs) have leverage on an issue like climate change, let alone the Russians. So really what you see there is China obviously plays a hugely important role in climate negotiations. India is going to play an increasingly important role. Now, one real exception to what I've just said may be this coming year with Brazil hosting the G20. And Brazil really wanting to emerge as a climate leader will use the G20 to that effect And it's conceivable, given that they have fairly close relations with the Chinese, that they would sort of try to use bricks like groupings to advance their position and advance their agenda within the G20. It'll still be a G20 outcome they're looking for, not a BRICS outcome, but they might use that sort of non-Western clustering within the G20 to try to advance their agenda. Again, the interests are pretty different. The Russians aren't going to go along with that, but you know, they might use some variant on a BRICS-like cluster to advance their positions within the G20. And I think we should be aware of this, that this is adjacent to our topic, but for Lula Climate change is the defining issue in his new politics, and the G20 is the opportunity that he has to sort of launch Brazil into a global leadership position on the issue. And so I think a lot of what happens in this coming year around issues like the BRICS and the G7 and the G20 will be in the lead up to the Brazilian G20, where climate will be the dominant issue.
1: That's a great point about Lula de Silva and the upcoming G20 meeting. That'll be very interesting to watch. So in your opinion, Professor Bruce Jones, what are the most significant opportunities and risks associated with the BRICS expansion? And how should policymakers approach to maximize the benefits and mitigate the potential drawbacks?
2: Well, I think the biggest risk is that if we end up in a situation where political or financial crisis in the United States starts to make de-dollarization seem attractive, then there is a pre-existing grouping that could find common interest in some alternative to the dollar. And that would be ruinous for the United States and extremely bad for the West as a whole. How do we avoid that? By avoiding political and financial crisis in the United States, which we may or we may not do. But we don't avoid it by international cooperation. We don't avoid it by playing games with the bricks or trying to divide them, they're self-divided. They will only be unified if we're facing a kind of really acute crisis in the West or an acute crisis in the United States that starts to make American dollarization, American dollar hegemony untenable in real material ways.
1: Thanks very much for explaining that. And thank you very much for coming on the International West podcast today. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a great conversation with Professor Bruce Jones, Senior Fellow at the Foreign Policy Programme at the Brockings Institute. Thank you very much for listening today. Today's episode was coordinated and produced by Ben Lawson. I'm Dominic Bowen, host of the International Risk Podcast. We'll speak again next week.
0: You've been listening to the International Risk Podcast, hosted by Dominic Bowen. Please go to wherever you download your podcasts and give this podcast a five-star review. Your positive reviews on this podcast and subscribing to future downloads is critical for our success. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend about this podcast. Consider if you know someone that would appreciate or benefit from today's conversation and send them this podcast right now. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for your fix of risk-related stories.